podcast, Alternative Worlds, Real Facts, with Claire Breverton, Fiona Healy, Monique Henson, Matthias Melenta, Ian Morrison, Benjamin Shaw, and Charlie Walker. The Jogcast, February 2017 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jogcast. I'm Charlie and joining me in the studio today are Fiona and Ben. Hello. Hi, Charlie. In the show this time, Monique interviews Dr. Teo Munoz Darias about X-ray binaries and Ian Morrison and Claire Breverton take a look at what's happening in the February night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Matt with this month's news. This month in the news. On the 26th of January, NASA remembered all those who lost their lives to the exciting but extremely dangerous business of space exploration. The annual Day of Remembrance was established in the memory of the fallen crews of Apollo 1 and space shuttles Challenger and Columbia. This year was particularly special as it marked the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 1 tragedy, when an explosive fire claimed the lives of three NASA astronauts, Roger Schaff, Virgil Gas Grissom and Edward White. Apollo 1 was the first one from the series of missions with the ultimate goal of putting American astronauts on the surface of the moon. NASA planned to launch the crew on the 21st of February 1967 and conduct an around two weeks long test flight in the low Earth orbit. On the 27th of January, less than a month before the planned launch, an important plaques out simulation was being carried out with the capsule mounted on the top of the Saturn 1B rocket, parked on pad 34 in Cape Canaveral. The test was meant to determine whether the spacecraft was capable of running on the internal power supply only, detached from all the external power sources. The module was filled with pure oxygen at the pressure higher than the atmospheric pressure, and the module hatch was closed in order to make the test more realistic. This ultimately sealed the fate of the crew. From the very beginning, there were problems with the communications between the crew and the team overseeing the test. After numerous complaints from Grissom, the test was put on hold to give engineers time to solve the problems. At around 3.31pm, still during the halt period, fire broke out inside the command module. It spread quickly through the capsule, mostly due to the pure oxygen atmosphere, ultimately killing all three astronauts inside it. The crew sent to rescue them was unable to open the hatch due to the large pressure difference between the outside and the inside of the CSM, and was only able to reach the already dead astronauts after several minutes. Immediately after the accident, NASA launched the investigation, which found numerous errors and omissions on both the engineering and managerial side. Bad wiring was found to be the most probable cause of the fire, with the pure oxygen atmosphere and the use of extremely flammable materials inside the capsule only increasing the severity of the fire. Floor hatch design, which could not be quickly removed by the crew in case of emergency, was also identified as a factor contributing to the astronaut's death. A number of recommendations have been made which increase the security around the design and test of the subsequent modules and gave astronauts the chance to influence the design and safety of the mission. This month, we also remember Eugene Kernan, 
the last astronaut to walk on the surface of the moon in 1973 during the Apollo 17 mission. He died on the 16th of January at the age of 82 in hospital in Houston, Texas. It seems like every month brings astronomers closer to solving the mystery of fast radio bursts. If one publication is not enough, the first week of 2017 saw the release of three new papers that try to explain the origin of the FRBs. They focus on the FRB 121102, first observed in 2012 with the help of the Arecibo radio telescope. Of the around 20 FRBs discovered to date, it is the only one known to repeat, challenging a number of theories which predict one-off cataclysmic events. An international team of astronomers turned to interferometry with the use of the very large array and was able to obtain a more accurate position of the source of the burst. During 83 hours of observations distributed over six months, The burst was detected nine additional times. A persistent radio source has also been discovered close to the FRB, with a separation of less than 500 parsecs at the distance of less than 1.7 gigaparsecs. Three theories were put forward to explain this unlikely coincidence. These sources might be two separate non-interacting objects found in the same host galaxy. Second possibility is that these objects interact, but so far we have not been able to directly observe this interaction, and the source of interaction is currently unknown. Third theory assumes that these two sources are in fact one object, most probably involving very energetic bursts from the active galactic nucleus at the center of the host galaxy. At this stage, it is, however, impossible to definitely discard or confirm any of the above interpretations. The second publication focuses on better understanding the properties of the host galaxy. Through the use of spectroscopy, scientists were able to get an independent estimate of the galaxy's redshift. The redshift obtained this way was almost two times smaller than in the study described above. This discrepancy was mainly caused by the uncertainties in the electron density model, which is usually used by scientists to estimate the distance to FRBs or pulsars when no spectroscopic observations can be taken. The researchers also argued that the properties of the very small host galaxy, with the diameter of less than 4 kiloparsec, make it very unlikely to contain an active galactic nucleus. For comparison, our own Milky Way has the estimated diameter of 30 to 35 kiloparsecs, almost 10 times more than the estimated diameter of the possible host galaxy. The last study provides better constraint on the separation between the FRB and the persistent radio source. The largest possible separation between the two has been lowered from 500 parsecs to just 40 parsecs. Two possible scenarios were considered this time, a neutron star powering a supernova remnant or an active galactic nucleus. But again, there was no enough evidence to favor one theory over another. 
Even though Arecibo is still delivering useful signs, including the FRB 12.11.02 mentioned before, its existence is under threat. One of the most famous and the most recognizable radio observatories in the world, partially thanks to its appearance in Hollywood blockbusters including Contact and GoldenEye, it's facing the possibility of being shut down due to the lack of funding. The US National Science Foundation has recently announced it was looking for financial help from partners in order to fund the operation of this 300-meter diameter giant. The NSF currently funds the majority of the telescope's operation, providing $8 million of the observatory's $12 million annual budget, but says it will be able to provide only $20 million over the course of the next five years. Those interested in effectively running the radio telescope are asked to submit their proposals by delayed April this year. However, this NSF has warned that if no suitable candidates are identified, other possibilities will have to be considered. The worst-case scenario involves completely shutting the observatory down. Thanks for that, Matt. Now Monique interviews Dr. Teo Munoz-Darius about X-ray binaries. Hi, I'm here today with Teo Munoz-Darius from the IAC in Tenerife. Hi. Hi. Um, welcome to, to the Jodcast and your first time on our show. Yes, it is my first time. It's a pleasure for me to be here. That's great to have you. So um, you work on X-ray binaries and mm-hmm. you gave a talk for um, us at the department about that. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what an X-ray binary is? Yes. So uh, an X-ray binary is, is a binary system, so it's a stellar system with uh, two components. One of the components is, is a normal star like the sun, for instance, mm. and the sun is a G-type star, so in low-mass X-ray binary, we typically have G or K, which are a bit more colder, or mm-hmm. M, which are even more colder stars. Mm-hmm. And uh, these stars, I mean, they are orbiting together with a black hole or a neutron stars. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that the, the these stars are so close to the black hole and, and, and to the neutron stars that um, the external parts of these stars... Feel, they feel the gravity of the black hole or the neutron star stronger than its own gravity. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that part of the mass of the star is naturally transferred towards the black hole, and during this process of mass transfer, they form an accretion disk. Mm-hmm. This accretion disk, especially in the inner parts, so is is formed by material which is spiraling onto the black hole, mm-hmm. and this, in the inner parts can be ho- become like very hot. And that is able to emit in the X-ray regime. So when we discover these X-ray binaries by looking to the X-ray sky. So using X-ray satellites, because I mean, thanks to the atmosphere, that the Earth atmosphere, we are, we are alive because of the, that yeah. Earth atmosphere, <laughs> we, we don't burn. Uh, uh, we cannot detect uh, X-ray binaries. So X-ray binaries or any X-rays from mm-hmm. the Earth. So we have to use the X-ray, X-ray uh, satellites. Mm-hmm. So is that like XMM or Chandra? Or? Yes. Mm-hmm. So the, the process is like this. So this system in general, they are, they are transient. Mm-hmm. So it means that uh, for most of the time, they are in a very dim and quiescent level. Mm-hmm. So you, we cannot see them. But every now and then, they go into outbursts. And this every now and then can be, I mean, Typically, is years to decades. Oh, wow. That's quite yes. long. Yeah. Yes. So when they go into outbursts, uh, their luminosity increases by 
several orders of magnitude, a million times. So they become very bright in X-rays. And we have in the, in the sky, we have satellites which are equipped with X-ray monitors. And those X-ray monitors can be most part of the sky. And they quickly realize that there is a new object there. So we point bigger satellites to those uh, newly uh, discovered transits, and we will point all the optical telescopes. Because also, I mean, when the when the system become very bright in X-rays, they are also bright in the optical. So we can observe them with the optical uh, telescopes. So when they are very bright, I mean, we can study all sorts of physics related with how matter is actually falling into the black hole. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's really complex physics because, I mean, it involves, I mean, strong gravity, uh, high temperatures, and so on. So we study so the, the emission processes, and we study effects uh, related to the general relativity. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, at some point, the systems uh, go again to quiescence. Mm -hmm. So this creation episodes, this last typically less than a year. Okay. They can last... A month easily. Mm -hmm. Even last summer we have a very bright one that lasts only a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. But they can last as long as a year. But then you have, what, 20 years in between events or something? Yes, and then we can have mm -hmm. 20 years in between. So when they go into quiescence, the advantage is that uh, at that point we know where they are. Uh, so then you can follow them up once. Yes, so we process. can follow them, them up with x-rays. You you might want to detect them in quiescence because there is also some interactive physics. Mm -hmm. But also, but I think especially in, in the optical and in the infrared, mm -hmm. with ground-based telescopes, we can try to measure the, the velocities of the two components because when they become very faint, mm -hmm. we are able to detect not only the black hole and the accretion disk, mm -hmm. but also the this normal star which is orbiting around the black hole. Oh, so you can see the companion star. So we can see the companion oh. stars. And using a very big telescopes like the BLT in Chile mm -hmm. or the, the GTC, the Mid Telescope in, in La Palma, in the Canary Island, we can actually measure the velocity of this companion star. By measuring the, the velocity, measuring the orbital period of the binary, and measuring also uh, the inclination of the binary, so the inclination relative to our line of sight, because, mm -hmm. I mean, they are somewhere in the space. Yeah, because you have no idea so, how they're aligned. So we can actually yeah. correct from these effects, mm -hmm. and we can actually apply the Kepler laws, which mm -hmm. are uh, basic laws, mm -hmm. and measure the mass of the black hole, which ah. is... So with this technique, actually this technique provided like 20 years ago... 20, 30 years ago, mm -hmm. the first, like, dynamical evidence mm -hmm. of the existence of uh, stellar mass black holes. Oh, right. Wow. So, so, I mean, when we apply these techniques, we, we found, I mean, in the, especially in the last uh, 20 years, we have mm -hmm. found that in 18 of these objects, we have measured masses that are higher than three solar masses. Mm -hmm. And three solar masses is the theoretical limit for a Newton stars. I mean, when a Newton star is a, is a very compact star. Mm -hmm. It's as compact as, I mean, most of the matter is actually compressed, become, I mean, very rich in neutrons, because, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, electrons and protons, I mean, let's use the word merge, almost merge, mm -hmm. let's say, so they become like uh, neutrons and becomes really, really heavy. This very heavy star is more massive than three solar masses, even those neutrons cannot, let's say, support the structure of the stars. But uh, it further collapse, mm -hmm. it's supposed to further collapse into mm -hmm. a black hole. Theory tells us that from three 
onwards. You should find black holes and not neutron stars. Uh, black holes. Okay. And so we have measured the mass of 18 of them so mm -hmm. far. They are typical around 10 solar masses. So if you found a black hole in one of these systems that was less than three solar masses, would that suggest that you'd found something against yeah. your ideas of physics? Or Actually, that uh, that is a very good question because the range between two and four mm -hmm. solar masses is, a, is really unexplored. Okay. I, mean, I mean, the most massive Newton star that mm -hmm. we have found is two solar masses. Okay. And then, let's say, lighter black hole mm -hmm. is around four. I mean, uh, so it's like the mystery zone. Yes, actually, there are several models that mm -hmm. propose that uh, there is a gap in the mm -hmm. distribution. And this gap, I mean, might have something to do with the supernova explosions. Because, of course, the, this, this uh, stellar remnants, mm -hmm. they are, I mean, they are formed during a, during a supernova explosion or during a, a supernova collapse. So, depend on the um, time scales of this of the supernova explosion. I mean, we might or might not have this kind of gap in the, oh, that's in the very distribution. Cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the thing is also that I mean, uh, for Newton star, there are another proofs for the existence of of, of, a, of a Newton star. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if we see uh, pulsations, mm -hmm. you know, it's a pulsar. So it's a neutron star, mm -hmm. and sometimes we see also explosions. Uh, we see uh, thermonuclear explosions mm -hmm. that are, are due to the, to the uh, um, accumulation of matter in the surface of the neutron star. That matters that typically hydrogen of helium, mm -hmm. and at some point the, this 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 matter just burns mm -hmm. in a mm, very non-stable way. Mm -hmm. uh, so so and we have this thermonuclear explosion. So if you if we don't have the the surface of the internal stars, mm -hmm. we don't can we cannot accumulate matter. Mm -hmm. So those explosions are not found in black holes. Ah, okay. So mm -hmm. it, so this 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 thermonuclear burst, they, they are a very compelling proof mm -hmm. for a, for a neutron star nature. So the thing is, there are like other proofs for the presence of a neutron star, but the only real proof for the presence of a black hole so far mm -hmm. is to measure the mass. Ah. And to measure the mass sometimes is very difficult. Mm -hmm. So it's, maybe it's more difficult for systems that are uh, less massive. We can be biased. I mean, our distribution mm -hmm. of black hole can be biased. No? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the only way to go will, is to find more. Mm -hmm. So I see what you mean. So because neutron stars, well, one, they're an observable thing, but also mm. the way things interact with their surface and mm. you can have these explosions mm. and things, mm. it's easier to get a well-defined sample of them in some ways. Yeah. Whereas with a black hole, you, you're you just relying on looking for these um, accretion events. Yes. Otherwise the, you wouldn't see it. Yes. The, the thing is that you don't need, uh, sometimes you don't need a very detailed study mm -hmm. to infer the nature of a particular extra source. I mean, you have mm -hmm. an extra source, you know that it's an accreting compact object. Mm -hmm. You know that. But you don't know if it's, it is a black hole or an internal star. Oh, I see. So you, you could see that event but not know which one's caused exactly. it. I see. Sometimes okay. it's, very, it's mm -hmm. very hard to tell. So, I mean, the, for the neutron stars, we have several proofs, like mm -hmm. the pulsations, this mm -hmm. burst, and also measuring the mass. Mm -hmm. For the black holes, we will have one definite proof. Mm -hmm. If you Which measure the mass and it's really, really massive, then it yeah. can't be a neutron star. Exactly. I see. That makes sense. There are also another proof because, I mean, we have studied like a decent population of objects. Mm -hmm. So when you see some kind of behaviors, you figure out, okay, this, this has to be a black hole. Okay. But mm -hmm. I mean, you cannot say that it has been proved. So, so to these systems that they look like black holes, but we haven't measured the mass, mm -hmm. we name them 
black hole candidates. Uh, because you, you're not sure. But does that mean if you did find a, so if you, if, if there was a two solar mass black hole out there or something mm. like that, or, you know, three, you know, one of these ones in that region yes. of interest, mm. then it would be very hard for you to determine that that was a black hole because yeah. you would just, it would always be a black hole candidate. Yes. Yes, exactly. But we could try to find, mm, like, a strong evidence mm-hmm. uh, for, I mean, for the presence of, of a black hole, because, for instance, in neutron stars, you, we typically detect the emission for the surface of the neutron star. I mean, it's so the quite... way the accretion disk interacts with the surface, yes, but, or yes. accreting matter interacts with the surface. Well, it, it's both things. I mean, mm-hmm. so the, the the matter when it's very close to uh, to, to, to neutron stars interacts with that surface. Mm-hmm. It's called bond that is called boundary layer. But the boundary layer. Boundary yeah. layer produces a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, the surface they become very hot. They also emit even when when they are. Uh, decaying into uh, the mm-hmm. quiescence, you can see them that are still very hot. Because... So you can actually see the surface itself? We, oh, no, okay. Not see the surface, because yeah. you have to take into account that the, the neutron star has a radius of 12 I, yeah, kilometers. Yeah, I forget. It's tiny. It's, you, it's, there's no it's, chance you would ever see that. Yeah. No. Yeah. What you can see is uh, emission from mm. that surface. You can... Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. Mm. Ah. So you mentioned that you typically find these... Um, events or systems when they're in outburst in in those in that situation you can see the accretion disk mm-hmm. but do you also get like the appearance of like jet type structures as well or is that a different phenomena no 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 it's, it's i mean when when uh, we look with uh, x-ray telescopes mm-hmm. what we see i mean that i mean the, and the system go into outburst mm-hmm. um they become very bright when they go into atmos, we also point some radio telescopes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we see is that they, they have like strong jets. Okay. And, uh, and actually the, the emission of these strong jets is very, is coupled with mm-hmm. the emission, with the X-ray emission mm-hmm. that uh, is tracing the, the accretion. So mm-hmm. jet is essentially tells you about uh, material coming out. Mm-hmm. So it's like a big outflow of material yeah. which is coming out. perpendicular a, to the disk. Yes, yeah. yes. typically mm-hmm. perpendicular uh, 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 to this, but what uh, defines a jet is that it's, it's a collimated outflow. Mm-hmm. So, and what we know is that the properties of, of uh, these jets mm-hmm. are really related with the properties of the uh, matter that is being accreted. Mm-hmm. So, so the accretion properties are very tight. With the, with the outflow properties. And also not only with jets, but mm-hmm. also with winds. So you get winds as well? We get winds as well. And especially we, we see like uh, uh, winds that are also very hot, like mm-hmm. very highly ionized uh, uh, material. Mm-hmm. We, we detect them especially using some lines of, uh, absorption lines of iron. Oh, right. Okay. And one of the things that is is uh, is quite interesting is that it seems that when we have outflows in the type of jets mm-hmm. we don't have out, outflows in the type of wind so you only get one or the other one or the other huh? mm-hmm. and which which is uh, uh, quite interesting and because the also the the, the system changes a lot mm-hmm. i mean the probably the geometry of the of the accretion disk but for sure the properties temperatures Mm. Uh, domain emission processes mm-hmm. in the accretion disk change a lot from the phases in which we see the jet mm-hmm. to the phases in which we see the wind. Mm-hmm. And this is quite interesting. I mean, 
so there's more going on behind the scenes between those two different things than it just being a wind or a jet. You're saying yes. there's a whole load of different it's, things. Yes. Yeah. And actually it can be the opposite. It can be that actually the presence of absence of wind or jets could be actually driven all the accretion phase. I mean. All right. So rather than the type of accretion leading to the formation of jet or wind, having a jet or wind could change how accretion happens. Exactly. I never would have gathered that at all. Yeah. But um, it's, actually uh, people start to think more and more about uh, this kind of uh, scenarios. I mean, is that because the wind would? So, if you have a wind, that might prevent accretion, or might res- I don't know. Is that yes. is that because that, that kind of sounds? Well, I can well, imagine that in my head. Right? It's, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, yes, actually, I mean mm-hmm. that's correct. For instance, I mean there are many kinds of wind. Oh, yeah. On many kind of uh, physical, not many, but several mm-hmm. types of physical processes that lead to the presence of a wind. One, which is, I mean, very easy to imagine and quite popular, are uh, winds that occur when the system is accreting very close to the what we call the Eddington limit. Okay, what's the Eddington limit? So the Eddington limit with material is start to fall into the black hole. Mm-hmm. During this process, it also ta- start to emit a lot of energy. Yep. This energy also produces what we call a radiation pressure. Okay, so when you're, so when these things accrete round to the black hole, they emit lots of radiation and that creates a pressure. Exactly. Yeah. So if, I mean, if you increase the accretion rate, mm-hmm. you increase also the radiative output. So uh, you, you also increase the amount of light that is coming out from the black hole. Increases the pressure. Increases the pressure. So at some point, this pressure mm-hmm. can actually overcome the gravitational force. Especially if you are not uh, very close to the black hole. Which stops accretion or prevents that, accretion? That, that yeah. will stop accretion. Mm-hmm. But when you stop accretion, you uh. stop the wind. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, so you will, f- I mean, you will find patterns like, I mean, you can see the, the system getting bright, 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 bright mm-hmm. until it reaches a limit mm-hmm. in which this uh, radiation pressure dominates. Mm-hmm. Since acc- accretion has been switched off, the radiation pressure drops decreases, back down, drops yep. back down and you, mm-hmm. so you can see as the you will see mm-hmm. uh, like the system. I mean, will become fainter and fainter and fainter and fainter, mm-hmm. and at some point, since it becomes fainter and fainter and fainter, this radiation pressure is becomes smaller and smaller, and accretion mm-hmm. comes back, and you see the again another cycle. Mm. Like so it's like a self-regulating cycle almost. Yeah, it could be self-regulating mm-hmm. cycle. I mean the. Actually, in one particular object, uh, it has been proposed, and to, uh, to my opinion, it's a very interesting uh, 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 suggestion that uh, sometimes we see funny variability patterns mm-hmm. in this black hole that uh, sometimes resemble like herbits. Resembles what? Sorry. Her herbits. Okay. Yeah. And and like I mean, like I mean, like a patient in the hospital level. Beep, beep. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, like a heartbeat. Yeah, like a heartbeat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and those patterns, I mean, could be explained with, I mean, this kind of winds. Ah, okay. I guess you need kind of modeling or something to look into that. Yeah, you need some kind of modeling. And you, you, and you need very good data. The, the problem mm-hmm. is that sometimes, I mean, uh, it's very difficult to prove that this is the actual process going on. I mean, mm-hmm. because, I mean, these systems you can imagine that are very complex. I mean, they are this very complex physics going on. Mm-hmm. So and many times it's not only one factor. It's lots of different things lots coming together. Lots of different things. Yeah. So, I mean, you might be, I mean, pretty sure you might have the 
I mean, you have, might have the data that support mm -hmm. this particular scenario, but it doesn't mean that uh, that particular scenario is the correct one. Yeah, there could be other things you've not thought of, or you, know, exactly. you might get new data which yeah. changes your insight. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned before that you originally started off when you were doing your PhD looking at X-ray binaries that include black holes, yes. whereas now you're kind of more interested in the neutron star side of things, I gathered. What encouraged you to make that shift from one to the other? Well, it's not that I made a shift. It's that, in general, I mean, we should expect that uh, I'm interested in understand how accretion proceeds in this um, high gravity regime, no? Mm -hmm. the regime that the, the, the we have is really strong gravity. Mm -hmm. So black holes, as I was explaining uh, before, in general, there are transient sources. Mm -hmm. And we don't know too many. Yep. And on the other hand, neutron stars, we know some of them that are persistent, so they are on all the time. So some of them are always in outbursts. Yes. Oh, some wow. of them are in outbursts, yes. And we know many more. Mm -hmm. So I would say that we know, including black, dynamical black holes and black hole candidates, mm -hmm. we know like 50. Black holes. Yes. Yep. And we know about 200 neutron stars. Oh, so that's quite a big difference. Yeah. So, so, and, Apart from the hard surface, mm -hmm. they they are the same in general. I mean, so they, any differences should be down to the surface. Yeah, think? yes. Any difference mm -hmm. should be down uh, 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 to the surface, but also you have a much larger population mm -hmm. to understand things that uh, uh, you can, I mean, guess in black holes. But mm -hmm. I was just what I was saying before. I mean, ima imagine you, you see a very particular and very interesting phenomenology in one system, in one mm -hmm. black hole system. Is that unique? Is that a property of that particular system or is that a property of the population of black holes in general? And there's no way for you to know with only 50. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but if you have a much larger population, a mm -hmm. control, a control sample, mm -hmm. you can say, okay, this pattern that we see in black holes are not only a property of of the compact object itself is not mm -hmm. a, is not a, is not related to the presence of a black hole. It's, to re it's related to the presence to the fact that you are that we are having accretion mm -hmm. in a, a strong gravity regime. Yep. So so the the neutron stars to add neutron star to this equation allows me to to increase I mean the population by a factor of three or four, mm -hmm. and that is I mean that is very useful. But mm -hmm. it's very useful because I mean the conclusions that you can extract are far more general. Mm -hmm. And what, I mean, we are in, astronomers, we are interested in, of course, we are interested in the details and we are interested in know every, every particular or, or mm -hmm. every object that we think is, is interesting. Mm -hmm. But I think the most important thing that we have to do is, is establish which are the general trends, no? Mm -hmm. Which, we, to, to, to generate general conclusions. To, to say, okay, when we have material accreting onto a black hole, what happened is this. Yeah, so you actually have an Regardless idea of the situation. Yeah. No, no, not things that can be due to, I mean, one particular object, which mm -hmm. is special because whatever reason. Mm -hmm. and, and especially, especially, I mean, if you work with, with black holes that are, they have different flavors because now we are talking about the stellar mass black holes. Mm -hmm. But also we know that there are supermassive black holes in the center of most of the galaxies. Mm -hmm. So it will be it will be very interesting to understand, I mean, to look at these Estelamas Blajos that are nearby in our galaxy mm -hmm. and to be able to infer conclusions that can be 
of interest also for the studies of supermassive black holes. Mm, that makes sense, yeah. And, and if we follow this line, I mm -hmm. mean, from Newton start that are even, I mean, we, we know many more, mm -hmm. we can extract conclusions that could be valid also for stellar black holes. Mm -hmm. And if these are valid for stellar black holes, maybe in some extent it can be valid to for supermassive black, black holes and onto ADNs yeah. and yeah. then it's yeah. a huge field, right? It's, it's a huge field, yeah. yeah. So what uh, I think is more interesting in trying to get uh, the general picture. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that details are not important, are very important, mm -hmm. but I think that the general picture is more. Mm -hmm. So, and the general picture is how matter is accreted by a black hole. I mean, I mm -hmm. think that is a very important problem because it has been proved, especially in the recent year, this is a problem that is interesting for stellar evolution, interesting for uh, galaxy evolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's one of the fundamental problems of uh, of astronomy. I mean, yeah, so it's a problem with wide ranging co ranging consequences, and it kind of links different scales of astronomy as well. So you've exactly. got because you know stellar mass black holes, I guess, is within galaxies, but you're going right up to cosmological scales with supermassive black holes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. Um, so, uh, in our last couple of minutes, um, you're obviously at a really exciting stage of your career right now because you've just had a, you're, well, you're in the process of getting a nature paper, is that right, as well? Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, so, what I'm wondering is, what are you looking forward to doing next over the kind of the next year or so? So, what, uh, what I'm in in interested in is to, to take this, uh, so my main research line uh, these days is trying to connect the, the, the accretion properties with the different output properties. Mm -hmm. And so far, this has been done mainly connecting X-ray properties with radio properties. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is also, I mean, that we could try to connect also the X-ray properties with the optical properties. Mm -hmm. For instance, because the optical can tell us a lot about things like the ionization states of this accretion disk, mm -hmm. Sometimes can tell us about the, the composition of this, of this, uh, uh, accretion disk and could tell us also about the presence of, um, of outflows. Mm -hmm. so, so what I want to, to do is to, to do like, uh, optical monitoring mm -hmm. of this, of, uh, new black holes in outboards or even, uh, neutron stars that are always act active in trying to link the different optical properties, but because the optical properties also change as the accretion change with the radio and the X-ray properties, but that I mm -hmm. think is something that it hasn't been done properly. Okay, that sounds mm. good. Like another way of probing the system and it gives you more information again. Exactly. So hopefully some more clues to those underlying mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, great. Um, so we'll leave it there. Thank you for coming on the Jodcast. Thank you very much. And hopefully we'll see you again sometime. Thanks. I hope so. Thanks for that, Monique. And now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all of those little bits that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So Japan is testing, as we speak actually, a new technique that will use a long tether to simply just grab pieces of space junk and move them into new orbits. And so, you know, there's a lot of stuff up there. The more satellites we send up, the more congested the space around the planet is becoming. And of course, the more stuff up there, the more chances there are of things going wrong between satellites. You know, you can imagine the nightmare scenario where something's in a polar orbit, crashes into something that's in an equatorial orbit and sends a cascade of material basically spiralling around the planet. Tiny little things that are then going to impact other satellites, effectively forming a ring of debris around the planet. Now, we're not there yet. It's not congested enough to cause something that catastrophic, but there is a lot of stuff up there and no one really knows the size of the problem. So these are just like things we've taken into the, into space and we don't quite know where they are or how fast they're moving. Examples are, you know, things like old rocket boosters, bits of solar panel, 
uh, Ziploc bags that are full of rubbish that have been launched from space stations in the past. Bolts and tools and other things that, have, that astronauts have let go of during spacewalks. Possibly even secret missions from other countries. And satellites that we've simply lost contact with and aren't able to... Elvis and Sugar. ...control anymore. <laughs> yes. Hitomi. <laughs> maybe, maybe. As a recent one. Yeah, we were talking oh, about sorry. that last Jodcast, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so as I said, the size of the problem isn't really known all that well. NASA believe that there are more than 600,000 objects that are greater than one centimetre in extent. Um, they're tracking about 500,000 of these, but these things can get up to speeds of about 18,000 miles per hour, which, you know, even a really small object hitting the space station or hitting Hubble at that speed can cause significant damage. Well, that's it. Even if it was smaller than a centimetre, I'd say it would still be yeah. dangerous. Exactly. Right? I mean, even yeah. something like a paint fleck yeah. hitting Hubble, you know, can you imagine that hitting Hubble face on 18,000? <laughs> but yeah, um, Certainly, you know, in the case where we've got in geostationary orbit, this is the orbit where you have a satellite that orbits the Earth once every 24 hours. So it will basically stay over the same point on the planet all day. And this is useful useful for things like communication satellites, weather satellites. You knock a communication satellite with a satellite out with a piece of space debris, it's just going to cause, you know, untold problems for the country that it's serving. And so the more things we actually launch up there, the more we're going to have to start thinking about how we can actually bring them down. And so what the Japanese space agency, JAXA, is testing with this little, it's almost the size of a wheelie bin. It was let go from the space station on the 28th of January. Um, and it went there as a supply mission. It, it took along food. It took along Christmas presents that you guys spoke about in a previous episode. And ordinarily, these things would take the rubbish away and just go and burn up the atmosphere. But this has got a job to do in between. What it's going to do is it's, it's moved away from the space station now. And what it's going to do is it effectively launch a long wire out into the space around it. Now, this wire is a conducting wire. Um, and that conducting wire is going to sit effectively in the Earth's magnetic field. This wire is about half a mile long. And one of the things you might have done in school, if you remember that far back, I'm not sure I do, is you do an experiment where you've got a piece of wire that's basically connected up to a voltmeter or an ammeter or some kind of meter that measures current flow. And you pass a bar magnet across that wire. And if you're looking at your ammeter when you do that, you see that the dial on it starts to sort of jump around. This is because if you have a conductive wire in a magnetic field and that magnetic field is changing, you can induce a current in that conducting wire. And so what happens, this is really useful if you want to, say, charge a battery on a space station. You just launch out a, a wire. That wire can effectively charge a battery for you. But, you know, the universe likes to conserve energy, and so nothing comes for free. Um, and so one other consequence of doing this is that if you have now a current carrying wire in a magnetic field, it introduces what's called a Lorentz force in the wire. And this has the effect of actually opposing the direction of motion. So what it will do, it was if you've got a one of these tethers basically coming out of your space station, you will effectively experience a drag force because of the magnetic field and that will slow you down. And if you slow down in an orbit, your altitude drops. So you've got to effectively put some current back in to overcome that if you're doing this from a space station in order to charge a battery. This Japanese team is exploiting that to basically take things out of orbit. They can send this little wheelie bin sized thing up there. They can somehow launch this tether when they see a piece of incoming debris flying past. They can somehow grab hold of it. That bit hasn't really been worked out yet. And they can use the fact that the Earth's magnetic field will set up this back EMF, it's called a back electromotive force, to effectively drop whatever it is out of an orbit. The closer it comes down to the atmosphere, the more drag it will experience from the atmosphere itself. And so it will effectively burn up in the atmosphere nice and safely. So this space tether or space hoover, is it catching debris and then slowing down and burning up? Or is it causing the debris to slow down and burn up? Both. It will attach itself to the debris 
as I said, that little bit hasn't been worked out yet. Attaching yeah. one thing to another that's flying past you isn't going to be a very easy job. But basically, the the fact that these two are connected by a long cable in a magnetic field means that both of them will effectively be dragged down to lower altitudes and they will both burn up. So it's a one-time so use. It's a one-time thing. These things are disposable objects. You could effectively say, send an array of them up and whenever they see something flying past, they could just deorbit. And then when you get a low count of them, you could send a load more up and then deorbit a load of other things. It's really clever and it's really cool because when you were talking about, you know, a tether, you know, I was picturing in my head some kind of lasso that they would like send out their wire and catch things and then pull them back in. But that's not quite what it is at all, actually. Well, it kind of is. I mean, it has to actually touch it. It has to mm. grab it physically but the motion yeah. back towards the earth is just done entirely by electrodynamics that's, of the atmosphere really cool. and, the, and the magnetic yeah. field yeah. so it's a really cool thing um so basically this thing is called htv6 um and the thing they're testing they've called it the contori integrated tether experiment um it arrived as i said at the international space station on december the 12th and it was released and i think there's actually a video online of it being released on january the 28th it should hopefully be a really cool way of just going up and cheaply removing stuff. Um, especially, you know, cause, cause to get to geostationary orbit, which is sort of 22,000 miles above the surface of the earth, you can, you can imagine the kind of fuel you'll need to not only get up there, but bring something back down. Yeah. You could effectively, you know, cut your fuel consumption, hopefully in half mm-hmm. by, by doing mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. It's hopefully a cool idea. I hope it works. Um, these types of things are used anyway as i said you know the space station or other satellites can just launch a tether to correct their orbits for example or charge a battery so the problem with all this stuff is that you know if 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 we keep sending satellites up and leaving them there at our current rate we're going to end up with just too much congestion up there and so i think space agencies need to be accountable for the things they're sending up there so what they could do really is in the future make sure that on board their satellite is a tether deploying mechanism that can basically then it can deorbit itself when it's finished with it if everything has a tail that can yeah. drag it back. Yeah. Of course, that doesn't help if, for whatever reason, you've lost, lost communication with your satellite. You can't then send a command to it to deploy the tether. But... Also, it doesn't help if your satellite's broken up and into lots of pieces. Exactly. only one of them will have the yes. tether. Exactly. And th- things that are in a low altitude that do that, you know, are only going to have problems for things like the International Space Station. You know, a couple of times a year, the space station has to effectively fire its thrusters to move itself out of the way of incoming debris and then move back down. So... This is slowly becoming a bigger and bigger problem. We're not at the sort of ca- cataclysmic stage yet. I don't know if you've seen the film Gravity, where yeah, all hell breaks loose. We, we, we're nowhere near that kind of stage, but I think we probably will be in the future if we don't start being accountable for the stuff we're taking up there and taking steps to actually bring it back down safely when it's finished with. So, yeah, I'm hoping to see what the results of this experiment are. Yeah, um, yeah. Hopefully they will be... A... Nice to be. It would be nice to see something going right for Japanese space innovation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, especially something so interesting and so clever. Okay, so my odd and end today is uh, something slightly different. So um, I was uh, reading Facebook today at work because um, <laughs> I'm so good at writing my thesis. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I spotted a story that my friend had, a post that my friend had on, on his Facebook page from, from some time ago, actually, well, about a week ago, um, uh, regarding... Uh, a well-known tabloid and its coverage of uh, a project that he was involved in, in astronomy. Um, so the project was to do with, he, he studies um, uh, binary systems um, and, and he studies the emission from binary systems and um, you know how it can be variable depending on how much accretion is taking place and the, the rate of accretion um, affects the, the, the brightness of the source and that that's the general 
um, just a bit, and they, they were talking, they, they had published a paper on an object that they'd observed recently, which was displaying some unusual um, dimming that they weren't, that, that, that was unexpected, basically. They'd been observing it, and they were not expecting it to do what it did, which was to get a little bit dimmer, I think, and then not get bright again as quickly as they thought it might get bright again. So they saw it, they thought that's that's unusual, they published a paper about it, and that was that. But then that was picked up by a tabloid, which I won't name, only to say that uh, it, it's also astronomy-themed in, it, in its name. Um, uh, and their headline was, uh, Anybody out there, stargazers have spotted another star which looks like an alien megastructure is orbiting it. Wow. That's what they got from this paper. <laughs> <laughs> they then go on. So they, they, uh, they used phrases like, uh, sorry. I'm sorry. So I'm just reading this over your <laughs> shoulder, Fiona, and I can see the word astrologist. Yeah, a space mystery which left astrologists scratching their heads has deepened. What's an astrologist? Like, can we just, what, what's the, like, there are so many things wrong with that headline, I swear. <laughs> yeah, I mean. At least they didn't say astronauts. That's true, but that would have been. This a is real worse. Place. This is worse, yeah. Well, astrologists are a real thing. Yeah. Like, they're just very confused <clears throat> is what's happening. They're yeah. very confused and they, they, they're, so they're using things. So really, I mean, like, I've got a bunch of things to say about this. And one of them, I think, is that, we, the scientific community, God, it sounded so superior when I said that, didn't I? Us astronomists. Um, well, yeah, us, us astronomists, <laughs> astrologists, have to be really careful, I think, about the, the words we used. So the quote from, from the team, uh, one of, you know, they, they, they were discussing it with, um, so my friend linked to a more reliable news site that actually covered what the results were. Um, and the quote from the team leader was, um, we had never seen anything like this before. Uh, he used the word shocked, like, oh, we were shocked. I think we do need to be careful about saying things like that. Cause other it's people, a very emotive word. For... Yeah, I mean, is shocked really too strong a word for it? Um, I mean, when you're working on yeah. something and you're seriously well, yeah, expecting that to happen and it doesn't behave as yeah. you are and you're so invested in that. But I think the picture that the newspaper have in their head of an astrologist being shocked is like someone sitting at their desk and just being like, oh my God, I must notify the university chairs immediately. Whereas really shocked can be like, oh, huh, hmm, that's interesting. I think I'll go have a cup of tea and mull it over. Um, you know. Yeah. Science um, kind of gets done by people being shocked in that sense. Yeah. And it's shocked is like scratching your head and being like, okay, well, I guess I will reduce these observations again to make sure this is correct. Yeah. And, um... So if I might ask, the paper referred to another star, which appears to have an alien megastructure uh, yeah, around it. There was that is this referring story... to that story from months and months ago? I think so. They're talking about Tabby's star. Yeah, that was 2016. Oh yeah, they've got another article about that one. Milky Way mystery. Star with a giant alien megastructure built around it is fading away and nobody knows why. <laughs> and yeah, they're, they're, they're attaching a lot of importance to not knowing why. Like, we don't know why tons of stuff happens in space. That's why we look at it. But it's not a big deal if we don't know why, <laughs> I would have said. I like this headline. Star with a giant alien megastructure built around it is fading away and nobody knows why. As if it's confirmed that there's an alien megastructure. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
but there was another similar story, and I think we did mention it here in the Jawcast in, in, in 2016 yeah. about a similar star. And uh, <laughs> this tabloid seems to have seized upon this as being definitive proof that aliens are there. And yeah, so they talk about the star dimming, and then they somehow link that to alien megastructures and other theories. They they, they cite nothing. Uh, uh, but they do actually they do cite a team from the University of Illinois uh, who they blame to whom they attribute uh, ruining everyone's fun by debunking the theory (laughs) I mean because it's nice to know that science in the end is just all about everyone having a lot of fun and nothing's more fun than aliens I guess but I feel like if they've written the article and the theory's already been debunked then no one's fun has been ruined because they are presenting the fun and then presenting the debunked fun at the same time. So what you're saying is this was never fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it might have been fun I mean, for the researchers. It was fun for, for sure. Mark. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it was uh, like, you know, they, they. I know this guy, he he loves his research. He thinks it's tremendous fun, but it doesn't have to be aliens to be fun. Yeah. Um, sometimes accretion is fun. <laughs> Some people think pulsars are fun. Ooh. <laughs> Close to the bone there. Yeah. That. Well, I think Novae are fun. I want to talk. <laughs> Novae are fun. No so full size. Yeah, everything is fun. But the fun yeah. thing is not knowing why something is happening. Why? Well, yeah, exactly. You were um, mentioning earlier that it's not a big deal if you if something happens and you don't expect. Oh it. yeah, no, well, I, no, that's that's what we do. That's what I we guess. Look for um, what I mean is, it's not. I think what they they're ascribing a sort of importance to it that implies like that. Oh my God, it's a huge mystery and like. The fact that we don't know why it's happening means that we've fundamentally misunderstood something about the universe, as opposed to, well, no, we just don't know. Well, I mean, some, sometimes that's the case, sometimes, sometimes it's not. That's true. Uh, yeah. But always when you don't understand something, it means you've got some more questions to answer. Well, yeah. I guess what I'm more saying jobs is for scientists. it's not always dramatic. It's not always dramatic when you don't know why something's happening. There's not always uh, an outlandish answer, per se, and it's not <laughs> always aliens. It's almost similar to what the, the kind of logic that UFO claimants have. They see something in the sky and they say, there's a thing in the sky there. I can't identify what it is. Therefore, it's aliens. Yeah. If theory A fails, then it must be theory B. Yeah, exactly. It makes no yeah. sense. Yeah. If science was done like that, we'd probably still be living in caves. <laughs> so, so yeah. And then I was also taken by the commentary. So my friend posted this on Facebook and one of the comments underneath it was, you know, someone kind of like not defending them per se, but saying, you know, at least it might make some, you know, if he said, if it even makes one kid interested in doing science, then it's not completely wasted, Uh, which I guess is true. But then at the same time, I don't like this idea that they're putting out a romanticized or overhyped idea of what it is scientists do. Yeah, I'm not sure you need to overhype things yeah. to get kids interested exactly. in astronomy. It's interesting. Like, I mean, what I see happening there, yeah, exactly. Like, I think they're giving out an erroneous idea of what science and astrologists is. <laughs> they're giving out a kind of, you know, kind of a wrong idea of what astrologists do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, since when was it our goal to get every single child enrolled in a STEM course? <laughs> mm. Uh-oh. I suppose it sells newspapers, doesn't it? There's an alien megastructure well, exactly. will sell more things. The bottom than... line is we know exactly yeah. why they're doing this. Uh, and that's fine. Whatever. But um... If they put, you know, the flux density of a star dropped, we don't know why. Probably people would just scroll past it. Exactly. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's, uh, my little storm in a teacup. Really. <laughs> <laughs> but Charlie has some actual alien megastructures to report on. Well, they're referred to as superstructures. Um, well, super Jupiters, in fact. 
So not actual alien-built structures per se. Not alien-built, but they are alien. And so what they are are alien worlds, which have been directly imaged and made into a little film of four giant planets orbiting a star. And it's HR 8799, which is 129 light years away in the constellation of Pegasus. So the story behind this article is that Jason Wang, who's an astronomy graduate student at the University of California in Berkeley, has put together a video based on seven images of HR 8799, which were taken over seven years between 2009 and 2016 using the Keck telescope. So what you can actually see is four little white dots which are orbiting a big black source at the centre. The black source is the blocked out star, which has been specially masked using what's called a coronagraph. And we use these a lot of the time to mask out the sun in order to see things that are close to the sun, to see the corona, for example. And the real excitement around this story is that up until the year of 2010, It's been quite hard to image planets orbiting stars just because the stars are so incredibly bright compared to the planets. So usually there's very exceptional circumstances that have to be involved to directly optically image a planet. They had to be very large and they had to be very far away from the planet. So very hot Jupiters in very wide orbits were the things that up until about 2010 were most often imaged. In 2010, a team from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory showed that you could enable very small telescopes to directly image planets that were much closer to their stars than ever before using what was called a vortex coronagraph. They did this by imaging this star system, HR 8799, using a very small portion of a five-meter telescope. They were able to image some of these planets. What this graduate student at Berkeley has done is he's taken seven images and he's used interpolation software to interpolate between these images in order to form a nice little movie of these planets orbiting the star. And it's just quite a very mesmerising thing to look at and see you are watching four alien worlds orbiting a star which is visible in the night sky with the naked eye, actually. It's in a, it's just visible with the naked eye in a dark moonless sky and it's in the constellation of Pegasus so you could look it up in Starium and see it if you wanted to. Yeah, we'll put the put the We will. Yeah. And the, I, yeah, in the write up. You should take you should take a look at the video. It's a really thought provoking thing to look at. The fact that you can now No, it's see. lovely. Yeah, I've looked at it too. It's 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 really incredible actually. And and you're right, it is kind of mesmerizing. You can just sort of stare at it. Uh what do you know what time scale what do you know what length their orbits are? So they range from decades to centuries. Goodness. The shortest is forty years and the largest is four hundred years. So you only see a very small portion Goodness. of the orbit over this nine year period that these images yeah. were taken. It's gonna take a lot longer than that to yeah. view an entire orbit. But it doesn't really matter to have yeah. the effect that this video does. Exactly. Okay. And they're they're super giants, so they're they're not um they're not terrestrial. Actually, planets. very interestingly, they're very close. A lot of them in this system are very close to the limit for a brown dwarf. Oh, goodness. So I think that the um, the mass of a brown dwarf, the mass limit for a brown dwarf below a mass limit is 13 Jupiter masses. Huh. And some of these are incredibly close to that. Right. So at that point, they would no longer be called planets. They'd be stars. They'd be failed stars, yeah. Yeah, so it's very possible then that there's actually deuterium burning going on in, in the centre of these planets if they're, if they're very close to the sort of turnover mass between planet and star. But it's an intriguing 
thought, isn't it, that you know you've you've got these planets that are basically staring you in the face anyway. I mean, you, if you if you do the calculations, it's not that most exoplanets are too faint to be seen. It's just that the glare from the star washes them out, and so you know it's not it's not a very common way of finding exoplanets. So yeah, I encourage everyone to take a look at that video and maybe go out and take a look at HR eighty seven ninety nine the night sky if we get a clear night anytime soon. And now for someone who will tell us about a lot of other things that are in the night sky this month is Ian Morrison. The night sky for February 2017. As I'm sure you know, this part of the podcast is really an audio version of the night sky page I write. Just search for night sky Jodrell Bank. That includes little star charts showing the areas of the sky where, for example, the highlights of the month are. Just, if I can, to say one thing new, uh, well, two things actually. This month, um, Cambridge University Press are publishing a new book of mine called The Art of Astrophotography, comes out on the 2nd of February, which really takes you all the way through the things you can do as an astrophotographer, just starting with a DSLR or compact camera and tripod. Also, it has a link to a new astronomy digest that I've started writing. There are actually four pages they're called up and running now, a couple on refractors, there's another one to come, one on the discovery or the direct detection of gravitational waves to update my book called A Journey Through the Universe, and also one on infrared imaging of the moon and planets, which updates and adds to the two other astronomy books. So my aim of that digest is A, to provide hopefully interesting and informative articles for all amateur astronomers, but also to keep all the readers and purchasers of my three books up to date with any new developments. So let's have a look. First of all, the planets. And in fact, we can actually see quite easily, I think, six this month. Jupiter first. It's lying in Virgo, some three and a half degrees above its brightest star, which is Spica. At the start of February, it rises at about 0030, but by the end of the month, by about 1045. It'll be due south at an elevation of 34 degrees at about 6 o'clock at the start of the month and 4 o'clock by month's end. The size of Jupiter's disk increases slightly from 39 to 42 arc seconds as February progresses, while the magnitude increases again very slightly from minus 2.1 to minus 2.3. On the 6th of February, Jupiter halts its eastward movement across the heavens and begins to move westwards in retrograde motion for several months. And of course, with a small telescope, you should easily be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the great red spot, and up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Well, Saturn is now a morning object, rising in the southeast at about 0800 UT as the month begins, but by about 0630 UT at its end. It lies right in the southern part of Ophiuchus, so it's quite low, and sadly, over the next year or so, it's getting lower still, down towards the lower part of the ecliptic. So it never really gets that high above the horizon, even when due south. It'll be about 18 degrees at maximum during this apparition. And that means, of course, that the atmosphere, or the dispersion in the atmosphere, affects the image. A star would look like a, a little spectrum. I've actually just acquired what's called a ZWO 
atmospheric dispersion corrector, and that uses two contra-rotating prisms to combat the dispersion and hopefully give one a much better image. I used it just the other day when I was imaging Venus. So towards the end of the month, it'll be high enough in the southeast before dawn to make out the beautiful ring system, which at over 26 degrees to the line of sight are as open as they ever become. Well, Mercury, perhaps not its best month, it lies low in the southeast just before dawn, down to the lower left of Saturn. It brightens from minus 0.2 to minus 1.2 magnitudes during the month and would be best seen about mid-month. But of course, no details would be expected to be seen on its disk, which spans around five arc seconds. Well, Mars is easy to find this month, lying in Pisces, up and to the left of Venus. And actually closest on February the 1st, with a separation of just 5.4 degrees. So in fact, could both fit in the field of view of some low-power binoculars. By month's end, as Mars continues to move eastwards and Venus begins to fall back towards the western horizon, their separation increases to just over 12 degrees. Its brightness falls slightly from magnitude plus 1.1 to plus 1.3, whilst the angular diameter falls from 5.1 to 4.6 arc seconds. So, of course, you would not expect to see any details in what I like to say is a salmon pink surface. It's certainly not red. Well, you can't have failed to see Venus, I think, in the last few weeks. It's now dominating the western sky, shining virtually at its brightest with a magnitude of minus 4.8. In fact, its close proximity to a crescent moon last month was given a lot of attention in the press. It lies due south mid-afternoon and can even be seen with the unaided eye. After dark, in a very dark location, it can even cast shadows. On the 4th of February, it reaches its highest elevation of about 33 degrees at sunset. During the month, its angular size increases from 31 to 46 arc seconds, but at the same time, the phase, that's the percentage of the disk that's illuminated, reduces from 40% to 18%. And those two effects compensate each other, which is why the brightness stays so constant. Invisible light, no details are seen on its brilliant white surface. But if you image in the ultraviolet, you can pick up some cloud details. In daytime, whilst it's still high in the sky, it can be imaged in the infrared as the blue light from the sky is filtered out. And one of the pages in this month's Astronomy Digest article on imaging the moon and planets shows how Venus looked on the 5th of January this year. Well, there's one further planet I'd like to mention. It's actually in the highlights on the web page. It's on February the 26th after sunset. Let's really hope it's clear. Because Uranus is exceedingly close to Mars, just 35 arc minutes apart, so easily picked out using a pair of binoculars. You may not have seen it, so here's a very good chance. It's shining at magnitude 5.9, just within what one could see with one's unaided eye under very dark conditions. And it's just down to the lower left of Mars, which has a magnitude of plus 1.3. The turquoise disk 
has an angular size of just over three arc seconds, and that can just be made out using a small telescope. So I do hope you have a chance to see Uranus. So what about the other highlights? Well, the 31st of January to the 5th of February, after sunset, Venus approaches, as I've said, very close to Mars. On the 31st of January and the 1st of February, they will be joined by a thin, waxing crescent moon. On the 31st below and on the 1st above. That should make quite a nice little skyscape. Quite nicely, on the 5th of February, all evening, the first quarter moon occult stars within the Hyades cluster. Looking first to the south-southeast, you'll see the first quarter moon passing in front of the Hyades cluster in Taurus. At about 1842, its dark limb will occult the pair of stars Theta-1 and Theta-2 Tauri, and at 2032, approximately, the magnitude 2.73 star 85 Tauri. Then later, at 2327, it will lie very close to magnitude minus 0.7 star Aldebaran, which is a red giant star that lies roughly halfway between us and the cluster. That'd be a nice thing to be able to look at. On the 11th of February, just before dawn, the full moon is below Regulus in Leo. On the 15th of February, again before dawn, the moon is lying close to Jupiter. And quite nicely, Jupiter lies between the moon to its upper right and Spica, Alpha Virginis, down to its lower left. A nice little grouping there. Could make quite a nice photograph. On the 21st of February, to end with, Saturn lies close to a waning crescent moon. And again, that's before dawn, and you can see the moon to its upper right and Spica, Alpha Virginis, down to its lower left. What about the heavens that we can see during February? After nightfall, that lovely part of the sky with Taurus, Orion, Canis Major and Gemini are fairly high up in the southwest. Sirius, the lowest, down to the left of Orion, roughly due south. The three stars of Orion's belt point firstly down to Sirius to the lower left and up to the right to the Hyades cluster, where the moon, as I will tell you later, will pass through later this month and then up towards that lovely cluster, open cluster called the Pleiades. If you do find Sirius with binoculars or a small telescope, just scan a little bit below, and you should come across a rather sweet little open cluster called M41. The reason I like it is because right at its heart, there's a red giant star that contrasts very nicely with the other stars in the cluster. Over to the left of Orion is the bright star Procyon. There's only a really one other star really visible in what's called Canis Minor. And then above Canis Minor is Gemini, with the two bright stars Castor above and Pollux below. And Castor's getting up towards uh, the Zenith, the heavenly twins, of course. And there's some nice clusters, in fact, down to the lower right of Gemini, which is part of the Milky Way. If you carry on up towards the right you'll see a bright star called Capella, which is the brightest star in our Riga. And again, there are some nice clusters, M38, M36, and M37, down to the lower part of that lovely constellation. As night moves on, 
First of all, a rather blank region of sky comes to the south, which contains the constellation of Cancer. And if you look with binoculars, there's a very nice open cluster called M44, or Priapy, or the Beehive cluster that you see just above its brighter star, which actually isn't terribly bright. And then, of course, Leo is rising over in the southeast. It's a lovely constellation, and Regulus its brightest star. In fact, it's quite close, as we'll see later, to the moon around the 21st of the month. So, quite a lot to look at. I hope you enjoy viewing the heavens this month, either with your eyes, or of course with binoculars, and then perhaps with a small telescope. Thanks for that, Ian. And for Antipodean listeners, here's Claire Breverton with the night sky where you are. Kia ora, and welcome to the February Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. This month we'll start to see some changes in our evening skies. Bright Venus, which has been dominating in the west for some months, is now beginning its journey back towards the sun. While still visible in the dusk skies, it will be setting as twilight ends around an hour and a half after the sun at the beginning of February, but by the end of the month it will be dropping below the horizon just 30 minutes after sunset. Fainter red Mars is a little above, holding its position well as it moves through the constellation of Pisces. At the end of the month, Mars will pass within 34 arc minutes of faint Uranus, with both visible in the same binocular field of view, and well worth a look, particularly as this also coincides with the new moon on the 27th, although by the time it gets fully dark from our location, the pair will be right on the horizon. On the opposite side of the sky, golden Jupiter is now moving into our evening skies, rising just before midnight at the start of the month, and by around 10pm as twilight ends at the end. Orion is now high in the north after dark, with Sirius or Takarua, the brightest star in our nighttime sky, even higher. Below and to the right, and forming a triangle with Sirius and Betelgeuse, is Poseidon, the brighter of the two main stars that form the constellation of Canis Minor, Orion's small hunting dog. Poseidon is the eighth brightest star in the nighttime sky. Unlike Sirius, at nine light-years distant, is one of our sun's nearest neighbours at just 11 light-years away. Also like Sirius, it is in fact a binary system, with a 1.5 solar mass primary and a faint white dwarf companion. Just over a third of the way between Sirius and Poseidon in the constellation of Monoceros is M50, a pretty heart-shaped open cluster of stars visible in binoculars. Around a third of the way from Betelgeuse to Poseidon is NGC 2244, a rectangular cluster of stars that is embedded in a faint nebula called the Rosette. Whilst the cluster is visible in binoculars and small telescopes, the nebula is more of a challenge and is best seen photographically. Below Canis Minor sit another pair of stars, Castor and Pollux, marking the heads of Gemini the Twins. Pollux, the higher and brighter of the two stars, is the 17th brightest star in our night sky. It is about 35 light years away from us, whilst Castor is in fact a sextuple star system located 52 light years from Earth. Nearby to Eta Geminorum, at the foot of the twin of Castor, is the open star cluster M35, covering an area almost the size of the full moon. Under good conditions, it can be seen with the unaided eye as a hazy star but binoculars or a wide-field telescope will reveal more detail, and they're the best way to view this lovely cluster. Next to Gemini is the faint zodiac constellation of Cancer the Crab. 
At the centre of Cancer is a lovely open cluster of stars known as M44, Praesepe, the manger, or the beehive. At magnitude 3.7, the cluster is visible to the naked eye as a hazy nebula and has been known since ancient times. It was one of the first objects Galileo studied when he turned his telescope to the skies in 1609. Galileo was able to pick out around 40 stars, but today we know that Praesepe contains over a thousand individual members, with a combined mass of between 500 and 600 times that of our Sun. As one of the closest open star clusters to our solar system, M44 is a great target for binoculars or small telescopes, which will easily reveal a number of individual stars within it. Higher, and to the east of Canis Major, is Puppis, representing the poop deck of the great ship Argo, which we explored last month. Inside Puppis are two lesser-known Messier objects, M46 and M47. Messier 46, also known as NGC 2437, is a rich open cluster at a distance of about 5,500 light-years away. M46 is estimated to contain around 500 stars, of which around 150 are of magnitude 10 to 13. Estimated to be only 300 million years old, this is a young cluster, and a lovely sight in binoculars or a small telescope. Astronomer John Herschel described it in his general catalogue of nebulae and clusters as a remarkable cluster, very bright, very rich, very large, involving a planetary nebula. This planetary nebula, located near the cluster's northern edge, is NGC 2438. A planetary nebula is formed when a low or intermediate mass star comes to the end of its life, ejecting its outer layers into space as a glowing shell of ionised gas. Whilst NGC 2438 appears to lie within the cluster, it is probably just a chance line-of-sight effect, as the radial velocities are quite different. NGC 2438 is estimated to lie somewhat closer than M46, at around 2,900 light-years away. Located around one degree west is another open cluster, M47. The two fit easily within one binocular field of view, and are often referred to as sisters. Messier 47, or NGC 2422, has actually been discovered several times. The first was sometime before 1654 by Giovanni Battista Hodierna, and then independently by Charles Messier on February the 19th, 1771. William Herschel also independently rediscovered it on the 4th of February 1785, and it was included as GC1594 in John Herschel's General Catalogue of Nebulae and Clusters of Stars, the precursor to Dreyer's new General Catalogue in 1864. Due to a sign error by Messier, the cluster was considered a lost Messier object for many years, as no cluster could be found at the position of Messier's original coordinates. It wasn't until 1959 that Canadian astronomer T.F. Morris identified that the cluster was in fact NGC 2422, and realised Messier's mistake. M47 lies at a distance of around 1,600 light-years from Earth, with an estimated age of about 78 million years. M47 is described as a coarse, bright cluster containing around 50 stars, scattered over an area around the same size as the full moon in the sky. It is bright enough to be glimpsed with the naked eye under good observing conditions, but best viewed with binoculars or a small telescope. There are a couple of other excellent binocular targets in Puppis, including open cluster NGC 2477 
a wonderful rich cluster of over 300 stars, described by American astronomer Robert Burnham as probably the finest of the galactic clusters in Puppis, along with its neighbour NGC 2451, both located close to the second magnitude star Zeta Puppis. Also known as Naos, this blue supergiant is one of the hottest, most luminous stars visible to the naked eye. It has a bolometric or total luminosity of at least 500,000 times that of the sun. But with most of its radiation emitted in the ultraviolet, it is visually around 10,000 times brighter. It is also one of the closest stars of its kind to our sun at a distance of around 1,080 light years. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now, on to the feedback. So, I'll start. We have some post. Hooray! Oh my god, post! We have a postcard and a letter from Mark de Vries from Krakow in Poland. And the postcard reads, Dear Jogcast team, congratulations on your 10 years of the Jogcast in 2016. Hoping for 10 more. Or even, as they say in Poland, Stolat. 100 years. Jodon. And the letter has a few questions which we're going to be putting in our bank for Ask an Astronomer. Uh, and one of those is, can you make your address any longer? <laughs> because he's addressed it to the lovely people at the Jodcast, Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, Alan Turing Building, Oxford Road, Manchester, N39PL, United Kingdom. I tell you, that address is a problem. Like, I get stuff delivered here to the building sometimes. Who is done like that? Yeah, oh, they don't like it. Well, it doesn't always fit. Like, often when you're ordering stuff on websites, like, they'll only give you, like, two or three boxes to put yeah. your address into it. And you have to squeeze it. Have a character in. limit. Yeah, well. yeah, exactly. So I've had to be very creative about how I do this. It's like, actually, we could make it longer by putting third floor and then the office number. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, I once yeah. sent a postcard to the Jogcast and it never arrived. So. What? Yeah. yeah. When was that? It was when I was on my summer holiday two years ago now. So it's definitely quite late. It might still arrive. Yeah. You never know. Well, if a postcard with a picture of a goat comes. <laughs> um, but Mark's postcard has a picture of Copernicus on it. And thank you very much for that, Mark. We hope we get to 100 years too. That'd be yeah, awesome. Yeah, I have to confess as well. It's actually the Jodcast's 11th birthday this January just gone and I forgot. Oh, goodness. January 14th, 2016 was our... And it's a year anniversary of the live show. So 2017, yeah, yeah. Well, oh. we did the live show, I think, on... Was it the 28th of February last year? So oh, well, of course, it was later, wasn't it? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the Curiosity Rover sings happy birthday to itself. The yeah. Jodcast doesn't do that. No, so. no, the Jodcast birthday went unmarked, so happy birthday, Jodcast, 11 years. <laughs> A hundred years, good grief. Yeah, I wonder if this will still be going then. I mean, well, the, podcasts the group will still, be, still be here, so it might be still Will it? Going. Will it really? I reckon will so, the yeah. Earth still be here? Well, yeah, We've that got is a good, four years to point. given recent events, that's a good yeah. point. But anyway, um, we have some, we have a couple of emails as well. Uh, this one's from Sean and it reads, Kudos from the Commonwealth of Virginia in the USA. Have been enjoying the Jodcast for years now and want you to know how awesome and needed this type of popular but technical astronomy program is. I love the balance of tech detail and headlines. Would appreciate more historical perspectives on occasion. Jodrell Bank has a great history, as does radio astronomy. Also would love to hear about projects to do at home for the moderately technical novice. Also, it would be great to forge more ties with citizen science projects and organisations to engage the public. Um, I love you guys, and I'm especially elated to hear the female voices in astronomy and astrophysics. Jodon, Sean. Aww. So that's really nice. Thanks, Sean. I'll tell you, Sean, I've just written chapter one of my thesis and I could tell you a thing or two about the history of radio astronomy now. <laughs> um, a separate podcast coming from Fiona. Yeah. <laughs> Random things Fiona found out <laughs> while she was supposed to be writing her thesis. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we should find somebody who's been at Jodrell Bank for aeons and interview them about what, what the site was like back in the day, I think. I don't, Tim, sure. Tim knows a lot Tim, of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mike Peel, I think, who's recently left us, did a lot of research into the history of Jodrell oh, Bank. He just knows so. so much about everything. Yeah. We um, should get him the next time he comes back to visit. Good suggestion, Sean, and we'll, uh, we'll try and do a job bite on that. Uh, we also have another email from Wayne who says, Hi everyone. Just a note to say a great big thank you, thank you to all the Jodcast team. It's a really fantastic podcast and I just can't wait each month for the next episode to appear on iTunes. You are the greatest. Jod on. Wayne from Oz. So thank you very oh, much for so that sweet. as well. So yeah, two continents that aren't ours emailing yeah. us in the same month. That's nice. That's exciting. So we have a message on Facebook from Francis Cairns. Uh, Hello, Jodcasters. I've been meaning to drop you a line for weeks in answer to your question about whether there was a point to Ian Morrison and, at the time, Haritina's slot on the Jodcast. So, yeah, we put that question out, I think, in our survey, wasn't it? In the listener survey. I don't think yeah, we well, phrased well, it we, quite like that. I think yeah. we we talked about it, I think, in an episode shortly afterwards. Okay, okay. Um, so anyway, Francis says, I started listening in 2008 when pregnant with twins and not sleeping very much because I wanted to know what was happening in the night sky. I gradually got hooked on all the things that were way above my head, but which I have gradually begun to get my head around. So I think there is a point to it. If I had to change anything, it would be to put it in the extra episode or give the information more in advance in case I don't get around to listening to it at the beginning of the month or if there is a delay in producing an episode. Keep jotting on, Francis Cairns. Oh, so that's very that's, interesting. That's we, really nice, yeah. It is a really good point. It's yeah. a good you know, suggestion. Often we are a little bit slow to get episodes out. I know this episode is not going to be going out well, yeah, the first. Yeah, release day is tomorrow and it won't be edited by then. So, mm. um, yeah, yeah I, th- I think we have been talking recently about putting it in the extra show and perhaps moving Ask an Astronomer to the main show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's balancing out of reshuffling the show yeah. but also and making I think sure they're um, both a good length. It's a really good point that Francis made, and I'm not sure, is this something we talked about when we were looking at the results of the survey, but that um that it is something that would bring people to listening to the Jodcast, like they might Google, you know, Night Sky. They definitely do. And then that, yeah. that could be a way for more listeners to be listening to us, which is always what we want. Hmm. Yeah, and obviously, if, if you have the Night Sky late, then people miss the stuff at the beginning of the month, and that's one thing that we really... We really understand that we yeah. do, we do miss things sometimes. If something happens very early and the episode doesn't go out, so we want to start being better at that. We want to start being better at tweeting out the links to what's happening in the night sky, yeah. even if we don't get the episode out. On That's time. a good idea, actually. It would probably be possible to just tweet some stuff related yeah. to the night yeah. sky um, before the episode goes out. Um, but yeah, Charlie and I have been sort of passing ideas between ourselves about how the running order of the show should go between the two episodes, because we worry that if we put Night Sky into the extra episode, then you're going to have Job Bite, you're going to have Odds and Ends, you're going to have the main interview, and then you're going to have the Night Sky. It's going to be a colossal episode, whereas the main episode will be News, Interview, Ask an Astronomer. Uh, news and Ask an Astronomer tend to be quite short, so the main episode will be significantly shorter than the Job Bite. So if you have some ideas about how our running order should go, do let us know. You know, we're open to ideas. Just tell, let us know what you think about how we should structure the show. Or if you want change. Yeah. And so if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. So I guess all that's left now is for the thank yous. So thank you very much to Dr. Teamunos Darius for the interview. The editors were Damien Trin, Tom Scrag, Jake Morgan. 
Claire Bretherton and Charlie Walker, and the producer was Charlie Walker. Until next time, Jadon. Jadon.